0: Just before we begin, I wanted to let you know that this episode contains graphic descriptions of physical violence. Please use discretion. A week before he was taken to Camp Omarska together with his dad, Sadko Mujic and his brother were in their living room, lying on the sofa and watching the movie The Fly 2, while the Bosnian-Serb army were beginning an attack on their town, Kozarac. That afternoon, a Serb military convoy approached the town and opened fire at people's houses. Then, from the green forest-covered hills around Kozarac, shells descended onto the town. The non-Serb civilians in Kozarac were engulfed with bullets and grenades flying all over. They were being targeted as they tried to flee. More than 5,000 Serb soldiers were attacking the town.
1: Medical center Kozarac was very shortly overwhelmed with injured people who were coming from all over the place. They had a grenade with wounds, and uh, most of them we actually couldn't take care of. My name is Azra Blažević. I grew up in the city Priedor and then uh, went to study veterinary medicine in Sarajevo.
0: After that, Asda worked as a vet in Kozarac for 10 years until May 1992. These days, she's a medical researcher and professor at the University of St. Louis. And she's the sort of person who just suits wearing a white doctor coat. Even during our interview, she had it on the entire time. And I can imagine her as a young vet wearing it, doing her best to help the wounded in Kozarac, being a steady and comforting presence for them.
1: Even before war started, it was clear to me that during a wartime, there is not going to be much work for me to take care uh, of animals. So I volunteered in a local medical centre and said, I have a good medical background. If you need me, I can help.
0: Once the attack on Kozaretz quietened on the 26th of May 1992, the most heavily wounded were taken to a hospital in the city of Predor. It was actually Azra's husband who offered to drive them there. That's when he was arrested and taken to Keretar, one of the Priyedur concentration camps. Azra wouldn't see him again for months and same went for her kids, who were staying with Azra's mum in Priyedur. But she and the other doctors and volunteers stayed behind in Kozarac in case any of the civilians not killed or detained needed help. But later that day, Serb soldiers who were scouring through the wrecked town arrested Azra along with the entire team. They were driven to Ternopole concentration camp.
1: We were told to remain there, to contain ourselves to a space that before war was a medical centre in Ternopole and make sure that not one of us is leaving without them knowing it and allowing it.
0: The motley group of vets, doctors and volunteers were arrested as one. Detained and forced to become the Ternopoli concentration camp medical team. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is Untold Killing. I'm Alexandra Bilic. I was really looking forward to talking to Azra. Hers is a story that resonates with me. My granddad was a doctor and he stayed behind in Sarovar when um, the war. When we left, because he was um, head of the children's ward at the hospital there. So he, he stayed there the whole war. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to speak to you and, and hear about your story as well.
1: Nice to meet you as well.
0: So that first day at Tarnopolje, the 11 non-Serbs that made up this medical team that Azra was part of were told to get off the bus and head straight to a clinic. The group walked towards it across the camp, all of them still wearing their white lab coats. They spent the first night sleeping in chairs inside the clinic, with sounds of gunfire coming from the outside throughout the next several nights. Ternopil was a very different kind of camp from Omarska, as you could maybe guess from the fact that it even had a clinic.
1: A small medical centre that consisted of two rooms for examination of patients and one small laboratory where people would go to have blood taken and laboratory samples taken.
0: It wasn't one structure, like a factory or a mine. It was literally part of a village called Ternopole, which was encircled by barbed wire and guarded by Serb soldiers. Detainees would sit around outside on the grass and cook what scraps of food they had on a campfire. And one of the main buildings in the camp was just months ago an elementary school.
1: There was uh, also a former grocery store and I think there was a bar at some point too. There was also a cinema room where uh, people would go to see movies in Tarnopolje and then a lumber yard and some other warehouses.
0: But Azra told me that Tarnopolje was unlike the other camps in another way too. It had a different purpose.
1: While in other camps, they had a stable group of people and people who were brought there as prisoners strictly. Ternopolia was used also uh, to collect people from surrounding villages and towns after the military uh, forces would do cleansing of that area, how they call it. And uh, from time to time, they would bring a large number ...in hundreds and maybe thousands of women, children, old people... ...that they would keep in Tarnopolje for a couple of days... ...before they formed a convoy and deported them somewhere.
0: Azra became a detainee at Tarnopolje... ...within just a few days after the Khosrat's attack. She told me the camp was already packed with thousands of non-Serbs... ...who were driven out of their homes and detained. Which was all part of the bosnian Serb strategy of ethnic cleansing.
1: That's a beautiful word that we learned later.
0: Back in Omarska, Satko says the camp there was also packed with people he knew
2: from Kozarac. Inside the room where we came, there were hundreds of men. It was very hot. There were no beds whatsoever. We were simply sitting or lying on the ground. The toilets were already dirty, the, the, the water was, was, was smelly. It was really already terrible the first day and it was just the beginning.
0: It didn't take long after Sadko arrived until the violence began. It was the evening of the 30th of May and the late spring day was just beginning
2: to darken. 150 men arrived to the ore mine on three buses. We were taken out in a group, 10 by 10 with our hands on the neck. We first had to stand against the wall, facing the wall. They would search us. Some of the men were were beaten already. I remember in my group, there was a guy just a few meters next to me on the right side. He was beaten very badly. We could hear his screams. The beatings continued the next morning. We heard that already that several men were killed. Some men were murdered
0: early on. Others faced a slow deterioration. Hunger set in very quickly.
2: In the first two days, we did not have any food, any meals. There were too many of people, obviously, already inside. And once we started to get food, it was really nothing. It was one small piece of bread and a um, plate with a soup, which um, I used to say, soup on nothing.
0: No meat, no vegetables. For months, that would be their only meal a day. As Satka was telling me this, I started to understand how after a couple of months of this, you would start looking like the walking skeletons Ed remembers meeting
3: there in August. Some of them, as I say, were sort of skeletal and had these sort of spindly hands and lantern jaws and eyes that sort of seemed bigger than they were in the sockets.
2: I
0: felt very weak. I was, I was quite skinny. And what Sadko told me next made me think that perhaps
2: this wasn't just negligence or inhumanity. Maybe it was a strategy. That's also what caused the whole psychology in the camp was changing in a way that if there was anyone who would try to cause some kind of resistance, some kind of uh, fleeing from the camp or whatsoever, uh, this would, would be cut after seven or ten days of starvation.
0: Starvation was step one of many in breaking the non-SERB prisoners down. And the situation wasn't all that different at Trenopoli.
1: At some point, uh, military... Did not have a way of providing food for people. So they allowed people to go in nearby gardens and houses to search for food that they could find there. However, we asked for permission to go to nearby houses to search for medication.
0: Azra and the team needed medicine if they were to be actually able to treat people.
1: We realized that. Everyone had some kind of medication at home at some point.
0: And when they asked the guards to go out into empty houses and gather medication, the guards said yes, although not on their own.
1: They always would go with a military escort because it was very dangerous to roam around alone.
0: Most of the houses in Priyadur were abandoned because the Muslims, Croats and other non-Serbs were killed, deported or imprisoned in the camps. But of course, there were those who were allowed to stay, the Serbs.
1: The houses that were remained empty were frequently visited by Serbs from Kozarats or surrounding villages. And they would take from them whatever they needed, furniture, the the belonging, whatever was in the house that they could use, they would take.
0: They allowed Azra and the others to go on a few of these grim trips, to rummage through the debris, each time going to villages further and further away from Ternopoli. And a few times she even went back to Kozarets, where she'd lived until just a few weeks before. What she saw there was a smouldering ruin of a town. The Serbs burnt everything, apart from the Serb houses. One of the times she went to Khozala, she asked for permission to go to her old flat to get some documents. So how did that feel? How did it feel? I mean, I don't know. I noticed Asda do this a few times during our interview. Whenever I asked her about anything beyond the facts of her story, her feelings or impressions, she started her answer with, I don't know it sounded like a buffer to me, like maybe she needed to examine her way through my question before answering. It just made me think of her as the no-nonsense, straight-to-the-point scientist even more than before.
1: My house was at that time half empty. Clearly somebody already was in there. Some people took what they thought they would like or they needed. It is some kind of out-of-body experience, it's almost, you have a feeling it's not happening to you. It's almost like you are having some bizarre dream. It's really surreal.
0: After a few of these trips, they were able to stock up on medicine and supplies, and they started treating people. What kinds of injuries and illnesses did um, prisoners come to the clinic with?
1: At the very beginning, it was a lot of uh, acute uh, problems either diarrheas or inflammations or uh, uh, psychological issues because people were were in shock. Some of them witnessed really some horrible things. Uh, As uh, the situation evolved, internal and we became uh, more accustomed to situation. More illnesses were related to imprisonment of people. More were to lack of uh, clear water. So we had uh, diarrheas and that kind of illnesses. We had scabies. We had a lysis uh, that emerged. But then also the violence came to, to the camp and, and also we had injuries that were a result of it. We had uh, severe beatings in Ternopole to the point where people were unconscious and unrecognisable for days. Ternopole
0: may not have meant to be a torture camp, but the guards still treated the detainees brutally. And the cruel irony was that a part of the clinic where Azra and the team treated patients was itself often used by the guards as a beating room the laboratory right next to where they worked every day. It meant they could hear everything.
1: At the beginning in that laboratory was uh, one table or two tables and a couple chairs. Later, they actually took everything out. I almost would say for us, it was easier when the tables and chairs were in to listen to it because The movement of furniture when people were moved around or or beaten would kind of uh, mask the sound of beating. Later, when they took it out, every single movement was either someone hitting someone or actually the painful sounds that people make when they are in pain, screaming, there
0: was nothing they could do and these beatings kept
1: happening. They would bring people, keep them there for a day or two. Some of them they even brought to us and said, "You see if you can do something for them." Some of them they would take out and we later heard that they killed them near to camp.
0: Ternopil was much worse for rape and beatings than for murder. Most of those who were killed were taken outside of the camp complex first. But Asda remembers two deaths that happened in the camp. One was a woman who was accidentally shot by a guard shooting just above the prisoners' heads to scare them. And the other was a man who died after being beaten in the lab in the clinic. But Asda would hear about many more deaths
1: from the detainees. People trusted me, I believe. People would come to me to kind of like a tell me. Pretty much everything. They would tell me where they hid their money. They would tell me what they want me to say to their family members if I see them. So often they would come and tell me that they were asked from the guard to bury people, to bury bodies.
0: But as Azra said earlier, the purpose of Trnopoly was to hold non Serbs before deporting them. Unlike Omarska, there violence and death were the main objective.
2: During the months I spent in, in, in Umarska, I saw several murders. I mean, uh, I heard screams of, of people in the night, I think hundreds of them.
0: More of Satko's story after a short
2: break. I remember the first guy who was beaten really, really badly uh, was a former pupil of my mother.
0: For the men who were taken to Omarska, seeing people they knew cruelly beaten and tortured by other people they knew very quickly became an everyday occurrence.
2: And he was leaning, standing in front of the wall uh, with his back towards us, and it was it was tortured by two of the guards. All the guards in Omarska were actually police officers, whether regular police officers or so-called reserve police officers who civilians who became police they had the uh, light blue uniforms i remember this this beating and his screams and and he basically was killed probably uh, the day after or he just disappeared i spoke later with his brother and he told me he was killed in, in the first days and i think i just saw the beginning of it so it was really tough to 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 watch it was t- tough to to look at especially if you know someone because Your natural reaction as a human, if you see violence, you would stop it. You would avoid it. I remember it was really difficult for me and for many of us to, to simply cope with the torture all around us without reaction. What were you seeing when it was happening? Well, during the, 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 the months I spent in Umarska, I saw several murders. I mean, uh, I heard screams of, of people in the night. I think hundreds of them, they were mainly torturing in the night. Sometimes they would get drunk to get, I don't know, more into the mood to do so.
0: Although Satko says the killings didn't only happen when the guards were drunk at night, they were regularly torturing prisoners in the middle of the day, stone cold sober.
2: And I must say, interesting detail is that in the very beginning, the murders were very um, specific. Let's say that the, 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 some individuals, some people were really chosen.
0: Several of the camp survivors actually said this to me, that they noticed a pattern to the guards' violence. They would first choose non-Serbs who were influential in society as their victims, like politicians or judges, successful people, and they would make an example of them. Like they were saying, look what we can do to the
2: best of you. But later... During the month of June, we realized that it was also a matter of luck. I remember a guy who, who actually looked at the guard on a wrong way the way the guard didn't like, and he just said, what the fuck are you looking at? What are you looking at? And he took him out and he started beating him and two others joined. And the man was on the on the floor, kicked and stubbed. This particular case, he, he didn't die, but he was really beaten for 10 minutes, at least by three men. And um, another incident again, uh, incident, uh, a man was, was beaten because of the shoes. He had a very good, strong new boots, One of them uh, ordered the man to take off his shoes and while he was doing it, he started beating him and he didn't stop even after he he managed to take off his shoes. People were killed because of a stupid watch. Both Trnopoli
0: and Omarska housed thousands of detainees at any one time and at Omarska, the turnover was relentless.
2: There were at least 2,000 men in Omarska at every moment and um, while new people were brought to the camp, almost every day, other people would, would be killed and taken out to the mass graves. And every man who arrived at Omarska had to go through an interrogation. The interrogations took place in these offices above the, the, the restaurant on the first floor. Just above the canteen where Ed
0: would watch the prisoners eat their lunch in a few months' time. And from what I can gather, these interrogations functioned both as a torture and intimidation tool in and of themselves, but also as a way of finding any excuse to punish the men, however thin that excuse turned out to be, or however much torture it took to get a confession out of them. Sadko was worried when it was his turn. He took part in the Khozadets night watch before the takeover, intending to fight the Serbs if needed, And back in 1991, he deserted from the then
2: Yugoslav army. He knew that both things could get him tortured and killed. Me and my dad, just before I would go to interrogation, uh, agreed that I will not mention, and he will not mention, that he actually helped me to flee from the army because uh, it would just jeopardize his life.
0: He had to be really careful balancing information he'd keep from the Serb interrogator and stuff they probably already knew. He couldn't afford being caught in a lie. He also didn't want to incriminate anyone else and then get them killed, unless protecting them would mean blatant lying. He says he felt so scared,
2: his body gave him a shot of adrenaline. My brain was very sharp. I really remember that I thought very quickly. I was very, very sharp in watching what was going on, listening very carefully. He would have to play
0: it perfectly from the very beginning. He was escorted through a long corridor by a guard there were several doors leading to impromptu interrogation rooms. Prisoners' screams and sounds of beating were bleeding through the door frames. When he got to his interrogation room, his first move was to knock on the door before entering.
2: There were a couple of seconds of silence and then... I heard someone from the other side saying yes. And I opened the door and I saw two men and I saw the surprise on their faces. I really saw they couldn't believe that Someone is knocking on the door and I did it like I was, you know, coming to the office to ask for a job or something. And you know, I really played stupid. Let's say I did it on purpose. I just wanted to show like, you know, culture. I wanted to show I have nothing to hide. I'm here to answer your questions. In a split of the second, I looked at the eyes of, the, of two men in front of me. One was in the uniform. The other was in with a white t-shirt, I remember. And in a split of the second, I realized, and don't ask me how. The one in uniform is a better man, better person than the white t-shirt. white t-shirt is a murderer, the other one it may be not. He was betting his life on this assumption. And they they asked
0: me questions, it it took four hours. The man in the uniform led the questioning. The man in the white t-shirt was leaning against the wall behind Satko and at first the questions were innocuous, establishing the baseline of Satko's honesty. Then they asked him about his time in the army, He knew there were records of those few months, so he only told the truth. He even managed to explain away his desertion.
2: And then he asked me about my role in the town.
0: About taking part in the town's defense against the Serbs, or different people's roles in the town's hierarchy, which of them had weapons and so on.
2: Where I knew they have this information, I gave it when I thought maybe they don't. I I simply avoided it or said, I don't know. I didn't see them. They asked me if I had a weapon. I said, no. They asked me, did you... uh, take part in this night watch? In the nights, I said, yes. And he said, with what? I said, well, sometimes without any weapons, sometimes I took weapons from the hunters from our street. This part of the questioning took a whole hour. But the worst moment in during the interrogation was when he said he was writing down something and he, he didn't even look at me and he said, you obviously did not sign anything to join any, any armed forces. And as a matter of fact, I did, because in April and May, there was a kind of list. Stupid organizers of defense made a list of all men are capable to fight. But 90% of these all men are capable to fight, did not have any weapons.
0: The interrogator was playing a game too. The Serbs' thinking was that if they could get the Muslims and Croats to confess to organizing to fight, to having weapons, they could paint them out as the aggressors in front of the world. These were investigation centers for armed men after all, and as the Bosnian Serbs running the camp claimed to the journalists later in August, and this was them investigating. The problem was Sadko did sign that list of willing fighters.
2: It was my neighbor too, who brought it to me, a friend of mine, and um, when I said I did sign the list, he looked at me kind of surprised and said, "Oh, I said, really, why did you sign it?" Well, I said, in case of someone would attack us, that I signed that I would defend. And then he goes, but who could attack you? Well, it was a serious question, you know. I mean, I was detained in a concentration camp. My town was burning and he seriously asked me who could have attacked me. And, us, and I, I almost cursed to him. I almost said something bad because I really felt anger. And I realized, shut up, calm down. And I just said, well, I don't know, whoever. And he said, who brought you this list? And that was the moment when I had to say the name of my friend and I, I didn't want to. So I, in a split of the second, I just said, nobody. That was when I really lost my uh, concentration, let's say. I, 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 out of the fear, I didn't know what to say. I said, nobody. And he looked at me and he laughed again and he smiled and he he made with his hands like a, like a bird. And he said, oh, it flew to you. And in this moment, I, I managed to get back to, with my mind and I said, no, no, sir, it was actually in the local cafe. The waiter just told me to sign because almost everybody already signed. So it was not brought to me. So this is again, a small lie, which probably saved my life, my friend. And that was the moment when the other guy in the white t-shirt got mad. He took his pistol and he put the bullet in it and. He pointed at me and he looked at my face and he said, you're lying boy. And he really looked like he could kill me. I mean, I was, I was terrified. Even now, I, I feel fear in my, my stomach. But
0: then sat looked down on the floor and he realized he was standing on a carpet, one which they'd have to clean if they shot him then and there. And he thought that maybe they wouldn't want to make their life difficult and the best move to save his life he could think of in that moment
2: was to act really afraid. And in a second, I started crying. And I looked up again to him and I said, sir, please don't, with tears in my eyes. And I tried to move the, the pistol because I was still afraid maybe just by coincidence he can shoot. So I tried to move the danger in front of my, my face and he moved my hand back and said, move away. And he continued, you know, pointing out at me. And then the guy who was interrogating me, At some point he stopped this scene and he just said to him, come on, let him go, he's just a boy, let him go.
0: I find it incredible that every decision Satko made, every inkling he felt was exactly right. And that's the only reason he's still alive now. That and being very lucky, not everyone was. Satko doesn't remember any of the other men interrogated on the same day as him being killed, but he does remember that that was an exception.
2: Just after interrogation, they would be taken out and and shot outside or tortured to death outside.
0: But it wasn't just in these interrogations when the detainees had to be completely switched on. To survive, they had to think on their feet day in and day out at Trnopole just as much as Omarska.
1: It was uh, intuitional psychology applied on on a spot, I think, from from our side. That's how I would describe our, our daily game with the guard. You never know during the war what works for you, to know people or not to know people. It could go either way, depending on mental status of that person on that day and what's happening around you and also your previous relationship or who knows what. We realized very quickly that the order of command was not so clear and not so straight. So we kind of knew when we can play that card and say, well, so-and-so, said we can do that, you should help us. Or do you know where where so-and-so, who apparently told us and actually not, left the camp and uh, was not returning for next two days because it was weekend, that was the time when we actually did the most stuff we wanted because we knew that the guard will be changed by the time when command comes back and when they have a chance to double-check with them, did they actually really order that? It was a daily game that we played, and thank God, successful. At Omarska,
0: thousands of people were killed over the summer of 1992. And at the end of June, the Serbs were just starting to ramp up their violence.
2: The month of July I used to call the killing days.
0: And while torture and death were less present at Trenopoli, the Serb guards found other ways to make life unbearable for the detainees. Did you ever experience any of the guards regretting or struggling with the violence that they were perpetrating?
1: That was rare. That was really rare. I think there was one almost like a, I don't know how to describe it, a situation when a, when a guard, very young one, came to us. He was uh, drunk. He came to us and he was saying he was kind of like a, Distraught and was saying, "Oh, I'm so young, and today is my birthday, and I'm celebrating." And 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 I, and I did so much in my life. I I fought war, I burned houses, I killed people. And then he stopped and he said, "But I never raped anyone." And and I don't know what possessed her, but a medical technician, a midwife that was with us, said, "I, I guess she was just a kind of like a not thinking." And she said. Don't worry, you are young, you get
3: there. We missed a crucial theme, rape. We didn't realise how much rape was going on in Trenopoli, let alone that there was organised rape of women who were kept in special quarters for, for that reason in Omarska. Didn't get that, missed that, in the sort of overwhelmingness of it all, really.
0: There was a lot not known about what went on in the camps when Ed Vuliami, Penny Marshall and Ian Williams managed to get into Omarska and Tarnopoli in August of 1992. But like I mentioned in the last episode, when Ed did some digging on what was known by different world governments and international organisations, he realised it was enough to do something, already in May, but definitely in June. Ed spoke to several insiders from the US State Department and the United Nations, and apparently in early June, the UN were getting reports from the ground confirming knowledge of concentration camps, not rumours. The US State Department got their hands on a list from the Bosnian government with 161 alleged Serb-controlled detention centres in mid-June. The UN, who also had access to this list, considered it an exaggeration, since it came from the Bosnians.
3: Margaret Tutwiler, who was later spokeswoman for the State Department, said that she had seen the reports of both the camps and the rape, the mass rape, and said, actually, you know, candidly, and and you know, to her own embarrassment, but I think estimably, that uh, she was so appalled by the accounts of the mass rape that she didn't take the reports of the camps seriously enough.
0: And what's more,
3: those at the State
0: Department who tried to get these reports out were being silenced.
3: What's the highest position in the State Department who made the decision to not let the information go out?
0: My producer, Jake, was speaking to Ed Vugliami about this.
3: The indications are that it's Eagleburger. Right. The Secretary of State. Right. So at the very top. top. The, the, the yeah, yeah. I talked to a, 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 an ex-CI officer who said, um, you know, the idea that we had no information on these camps is, is an outright lie. Anything rather than intervene. They did the same with Rwanda. It's very odd, given the history of what happened later in Iraq and Afghanistan, but, um, you know, there's always this dilemma. But no, it was a a determined policy. The Americans were, in a way, sometimes the best of the bad bunch. The frustration radiates off of Ed when he talks about this. To him, it's pretty clear that the so-called international community really didn't have a problem with any of this. Let's put this in perspective. The Srebrenica massacre of 8,000 men and boys in five days, nominally under the protection of the United Nations protection force, my emphasis, was three effing years later. Three years. And nobody could say we didn't know some of the best journalism of my generation came out of that war, that genocide. So let's get this in perspective. What do you think that says about, well, anything? Uh, It was a lesson in the inefficacy of my profession. I mean, the journalism, people look at the power of the media. I don't think so. We made no difference whatsoever. And also, I think, you know, it, it teaches you about what they call geopolitics or what these, you know, these, these overpaid, canopy gobbling diplomats who take their profession so seriously that, you know, actually, so long as this kind of thing fits the scheme, it's okay. It doesn't matter that men are incarcerated and mutilated and tortured and killed in concentration camps, that women are rounded up and serially violated all night every night, that villages are burned, and that uh, genocidal violence against a specific ethnicity is enacted over a three-year period, that safe havens that are declared by the UN are then delivered to the butchers for massacre. What matters is not to upset the apple cart of geopolitics, which is a a satanic term. So yeah, I uh, I learned a lot about the inefficacy of my profession And I learned a lot about the way that uh, the bloated, repulsive, so-called international system works, or doesn't. In all the reporting Ed and the other journalists did about who knew what about
0: the camps during the spring and summer of 1992, there is one gap that even Ed himself is aware of.
3: Did you ever try and find out the same level of information that you did on the American side on the British side? I was stuck with the Americans. Uh, I did try that much success.
0: The British government were one of the loudest voices in Europe against getting involved in the Bosnian War, even after other countries started leaning more and more towards directly stepping in.
3: I mean, the British and the French were even more determined not to intervene to the point of abetting what was happening.
0: Back then, it may have seemed like a political ideology. The Foreign Secretary at the time, Douglas Hurd, and the Defence Secretary, Malcolm Rifkind, were known non-interventionists. But if they knew about the human rights abuses going on in these camps at the time, doing nothing was an active decision to let them go on. And so we wanted to see how much we could find out. Perhaps now, years after Ed did his digging, something will shake loose. That's coming up later this series on Untold Killing. But before that, on the next episode, I wanted to hear more from Satko about what he calls the killing days. And also to understand how big of a role systematic rape of women played in the camps. I believe that most of the cases of sexual abuse and rape took place in the month of July. There are still a lot of questions when it comes to when it began. Untold Killing is a co-production of Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. It's written and produced by Jake Otayevich. Thank you to Elmina Kulisic, Kate Williams, and Amra Mukanovic from Remembering Srebrenica for helping put this series together. And also a special thanks to the Bosnian-American Genocide Institute and Education Center for their partnership and support in fundraising, as well as Ayla Delkic. Mixing and sound design by Rowan Bishop Sandra Ferrari is the executive producer. The theme music is by Matt Huxley. My name is Alexandra Bilic.